So uh, as you can see on the screen, uh, we are continuing our current sermon series this morning in the book of Acts. Uh, we are drawing this uh, series to a close uh, over the next uh, few weeks now. So you may remember that for those of you that were here a couple of weeks ago that we left Paul in Roman custody under a man called Governor Festus. And uh, that is really where we pick the story up again this morning as uh, we see Paul's really um, final defence uh, in the book of Acts before Festus and uh, the Jewish king Agrippa. And I'm going to ask uh, Wena uh, if she would come up now and uh, read the scriptures and for us. Thanks, Wena. Today's reading is from Acts 25, verse 23 to 26, verse 32. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking military officers and the prominent men of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man. The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. I found he had done nothing deserving of death, but because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about him. Therefore, I have brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write. For I think it is unreasonable to send a prisoner on to Rome without specifying the charges against him. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jewish people all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that I conform to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise our twelve tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And they were put to death. I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Soul, soul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet, 
I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles. I preached that they should repent and turn to God, and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day, so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing about what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer, and as to the first to rise from the dead, would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice, because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, Short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today, may become what I am, except for these chains. The king rose, and with him the governor and Bernice and those sitting with them. After they left the room, they began saying to one another, This man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Thank you very much. Wena. Well, the um, story is told of the king of Siam in the early 1700s about an audience that he once had with the Dutch ambassador. So apparently the Dutch ambassador told the king that in wintertime in Holland that it got so cold that the lakes would totally freeze and become, the ice would become so thick that even a man or even an elephant uh, could actually walk on it, I guess, if elephants had actually lived in Holland. Um, now, this was just way too much for the king of um, Siam, um, who instantly concluded that all Europeans were lying and crazy, and that he wasn't going to have anything more to do with any of them, which is exactly what happened for him. The idea of an elephant uh, walking on ice was just so insane, it was just so unreasonable, it was just uh, so beyond the realms of uh, anything that he, he could even conceive of, uh, that he totally dismissed it. Even although now, of course, we know that the Dutch ambassador uh, was actually telling the truth. And of course, I think that is also how many people treat Christianity as well. It just seems insane. It just seems so unreasonable. How can I believe that God actually became a person? Uh, how can I believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Uh, how do I even know that God exists when there's so much hardship and so much suffering in the world? And all just sounds so crazy, so wild, so uh, beyond the realms, really, of what we are used to, that we maybe just want to dismiss it out of hand as totally unreasonable. Well, we see from our reading this morning in verse 24 that this was also Governor 
Festus's reaction to the Apostle Paul as well. So uh, we um, see that Festus listened to Paul as he, he spoke, and when Paul reached a particular point, uh, speaking about the resurrection, it's almost like poor old Festus uh, just couldn't take it anymore, and so he shouts out, Are you out of your mind, Paul? Your great learning is driving you insane. And then Paul replies in verse 25, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. And so this morning then we're looking at the question, is Christianity reasonable? And this may be a question that we have, and if that is a question that you have, then that's a really great question uh, to be asking this morning. Uh, is Christianity reasonable? Is it uh, um, something I can believe in without leaving my brain behind? It may be a question that those around us have, though, and therefore uh, we need to know how to answer it. But either way, this is a really relevant question for us. Um, is Christianity reasonable? And so what I would like to do is really look at Paul's speech before King Agrippa from chapter 26, verse 1, through to about verse 23, and in particular, look at three reasons why Paul thought it was obviously reasonable to believe in Jesus. And therefore, I think three reasons why we as well uh, ought to give Christianity a hearing. So uh, reason number one, then, is that Jesus offers us hope for the future. I think we can see this in verse 1 to 8, where Paul particularly draws our attention towards his hope. So let's uh, remind ourselves of what Paul says in uh, verse 6 to 8. So Paul says, And now it's because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes, that's the 12 tribes of Israel, are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? And so hopefully you can see that even from the vocabulary that Paul uses that he's talking about his hope. Uh, I think we can see its content, uh, and there's a couple of different aspects to this. I guess the first aspect is that Paul is obviously speaking here as a Jew. Uh, he's speaking as a Jew, and because Paul is a Jew, he knows that God has made many promises in the Old Testament to Old Testament Israel. And he knows that uh, these promises have now all been fulfilled in Jesus. I think that's what Paul means here when he speaks about the hope that God has promised our ancestors or the promise that the 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled. He's saying that he's on trial because he's believed in Jesus and in particular because he's, be he's believed in the way that the promises to Israel have been fulfilled in and through Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus is the one who has fulfilled the hopes of his Old Testament people uh, in his Resurrection, and he's brought about a new age. He's brought about a new era in salvation history. But then there's also another aspect to this as well, which is Paul is also speaking here, I think, about the hope that Jesus has brought to everyone. So remember that Paul isn't just speaking as a Jew, but he's also speaking here as the apostle to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. And so he knows that Jesus has actually brought hope for everyone. He knows that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so everyone faces the problem of death. Everyone faces the problem of God's judgment hanging over them. And therefore, everyone needs the hope of eternal life that Jesus brings. I think we can especially see this a little bit later on in our passage. So in verse 22 and 23, towards the end, where Paul says, I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. That's the Old Testament bit. That the Messiah, that is Jesus, would suffer. 
and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. And so hopefully you can see what Paul's saying there. Uh, Jesus is not only the hope for the Jews, although he is the hope for the Jews, his own people, but he is also the hope for the Gentiles or non-Jews um, as well. That, uh, he's brought the message of light to the Gentiles. Um, where does this hope come from? Well, in both cases, uh, it comes from Jesus' resurrection. It's Jesus' resurrection from the dead that fulfilled the hopes of Israel and brought in a new era. And it's Jesus' resurrection that actually brings hope to everyone. Sin and death, of course, are defeated through Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And it's because Paul's making this link that I think he exclaims there in verse 8, why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the, the dead? Of course, Paul's point is that no one should consider it incredible that God raises the dead. If God is all-powerful, then it's kind of obvious that uh, God should be able to raise the dead. And it's especially if God is going to raise people at the end of time uh, anyway, which is what many of the Jews believe, then it isn't incredible at all that God should raise the, the dead now in the person of Jesus Christ in time and space history. Of course, it's also a question which is relevant to many skeptics in our own age as well. Uh, why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I guess in our culture here, the resurrection is often considered a sort of major stumbling block to Christian faith. Uh, most people think it's unreasonable, it's insane maybe to believe that Jesus rose again from the dead. And maybe we think, well, okay, something unusual probably happened, something un unusual went on, but we aren't really sure what, uh, we can't really know for, for sure, and therefore uh, we tend to be skeptical about Jesus' resurrection. But as we hopefully um, discovered uh, by listening to Niles uh, this time last week, there is actually really good evidence out there for Jesus' uh, resurrection. You might uh, rem remember that uh, we, we looked at uh, some of the pieces of evidence last week. Um, Jesus really did die. Jesus really did die on the cross. So he didn't just swoon or faint on the cross, but Jesus really did die. And then we also saw that the tomb really was empty. Jesus' body was not there. And at no point do we have any record of anybody producing it. And then also Jesus appeared to the eyewitnesses. And not just uh, one or two emotionally unstable eyewitnesses either. But the Bible tells us that Jesus actually appeared to many eyewitnesses at, um, at um, various different times. And even to more than 500 people uh, at once, as we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And so all of this actually adds up to really good evidence that the resurrection happened. It's interesting that uh, nowhere in the book of Acts, and actually nowhere else in ancient history either, do we get the enemies of Christianity ever attacking the fact of the resurrection. It is true, of course, that they have lots of other ac accusations against the early Christians, but yet it seems as if no one ever claimed or tried to claim that the resurrection never actually happened. I think that's another important piece of evidence that points to the fact that Jesus really did rise from the dead. And so I think all of this is one reason why Christianity is reasonable this morning. Christianity brings hope for the um, future, and this hope is based on a historical event, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I was on the uh, atheist Richard Dawkins' uh, website this last week and I uh, read there this 
question uh, from somebody who had uh, written it in to him. So this person says, I'm in my mid-30s and I've been an atheist since I remember thinking about these issues. The idea that there's a loving God is obviously patently ridiculous. Uh, religion seems to be an attempt to suffuse meaning into a meaningless world and remove the fear of death. But w without it, how do you fill these very basic human needs? And then they go on for me, it's miserable because I'm consumed by a terror of death and the meaninglessness that is cast over my entire life and everything I love. I'm wondering how other atheists find a way to move forwards. Yes, I tell myself the Epicurus argu arguments, where I am, death is not, and where death is, I am not. And I've considered that living for the moment is all we have. But these things don't soothe me, and I go into months of existential dread. How do other atheists find positive feelings about life? Well, I wonder how you would answer our atheistic um, friend. Well, surely we would want to point them to the Christian hope, wouldn't we? That uh, actually, as um, human beings, we need hope. Actually, we are designed to have hope. If God created the world and he loves us and he wants us to be in a relationship with him, then God wants us to have hope. And more than that, that God has actually provided that hope for us in and through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I would say that if your atheistic worldview is giving you months of atheistic dread, then uh, are you really so sure that there's not a loving God out there after all? Well, there's much more we could say, but we need to move on because we also see that another reason why Christianity is reasonable is because Jesus offers us a break from the past. And I think this brings us to look at Paul's testimony of how he became a Christian from verse 9 to 18. And here we see that Paul outlines what happened to him before, during, and after his conversion. So first of all, we see Paul's past, or before his conversion, when he was a persecutor of the church. Uh, so in Paul's own words there, in verse 9, he says, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. In verse 10, I've put many of the Lord's people in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Then in verse 11, Paul says that he was so obsessed with persecuting them that he even hunted the Christians down to foreign cities. Now, I'm sure that uh, no, nobody here has got a track record of sort of persecuting the Christian church like the Apostle Paul had uh, in his early days. But yet the verdict of God's word on all of us is actually that we are all separated from God because of our sin and rebellion against him, no matter how that's actually manifested itself in our lives. Uh, none of us is righteous. No, not one. And then we see what happened during Paul's conversion from verse 12 to 15. So Paul says he was traveling to Damascus to persecute yet more Christians when all of a sudden there's a light brighter than the sun that blazes round him. Uh, everybody falls down and then Paul's hear, Paul hears a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And then Paul answers, who are you, Lord? And the reply comes, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. Again, our experience may not be as dramatic as Paul's, but if we are Christians, there will still be a time, whether that's instantaneous, like it kind of was with Paul here, or whether that's much more gradual, like it often is for many of us, 
uh, where we come to know that Jesus is alive, that Jesus is real, and uh, we really need to deal with him. And then we also see the results or after Paul's conversion in uh, verse 16 to 18. So this is Paul's commissioning as an apostle, as a sort of eyewitness representative of Jesus Christ. So in verse um, 16, Jesus says, I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. And then just a couple of verses later in verse 18, we really get this wonderful summary of the gospel message where Jesus says to Paul about his mission to the Gentiles. And this is really amazing. This is Jesus' own words. So this is Jesus uh, explaining and describing uh, what the gospel message uh, actually is. And um, Jesus says, I'm sending you, Paul, to them, that's to the Gentiles, to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified, which just means made holy um, by faith in me. So these are um, Jesus' own words about what the gospel is. What does the gospel do? Well, Jesus says it moves people from blindness to having their eyes opened. The gospel moves people from darkness to light. And the gospel moves people from the power of Satan to the power of God. And then what are the results of the gospel? Well, Jesus says that it results in the forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And so Jesus is saying that we can experience the freedom and joy of being uh, forgiven from our past rebellion. That's what Jesus says, that it results in the forgiveness of sins. And then Jesus, Jesus also places us into the community of God's people. If you like, Christianity always has to be personal, but, but uh, Christianity is never private. Why? Because God places us into the community of his people. Jesus places us into the church, which of course is one reason why church membership is so important. Jesus himself places us into his people, and one way that we can identify with them is to join the church in a formal way. How does all this come about? Well, again, Jesus is clear that it uh, comes about by faith. Uh, he says, a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And so faith needs to be part of our response. It's true that ultimately God opens our eyes and brings us from darkness to light. It is true that ultimately God is the one who moves uh, people from the power of Satan to the power of God. But yet we also need to respond to the message. And the way that we do that is by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, there's, there's a lot in there. But I think the big point here is that Jesus offers us a break from the past. Jesus did that for Paul, and he can actually do that for you too. I think one reason that Christianity is so reasonable, one reason why you should think about Christianity, is because it actually meets our deepest needs and longings, including the longing and need that we all have to be um, forgiven for our sins so think with me for a moment uh, about someone maybe making a movie of your whole life. Uh, all of your actions, all of your thoughts, uh, everything that you've ever done um, recorded in the movie. And now imagine that you had the opportunity to uh, watch that movie back. Maybe you would need to uh, watch it back sort of extra quick. Um, uh, and, in, and I would expect that as you watch that movie back, uh, there would be some things in there that you'd be really proud of, something that would be r really great that time when you really helped somebody maybe self-sacrificially, 
There'd be that time, perhaps, when you won that award at school. Uh, that time when you put in a really great performance on the sports field. Uh, that time when you really accomplished accompli something that was meaningful and worthwhile at work. But I suspect if we're honest, there'd be a whole lot of other stuff in there that we wouldn't be particularly proud of. Those kind of things in our past that we'd really want to remain hidden and that we wouldn't want anybody else to know about. That time when we screamed at our kids or we got angry at our spouse uh, when we didn't really need to. That lie that we told that actually nobody else knows about apart from God and us. That sexual sin that uh, we really feel guilty about and uh, we really wanted uh, to always remain hidden. Well, you see, the great truth of this passage is that Jesus really does offer us a break from our past. Just as Jesus appeared to Paul and wiped his past slate clean of all that persecution against the Christians, so Jesus can wipe our pasts um, clean as well. Those scenes in that movie, maybe, that you are most ashamed of, they can be deleted. And the reason that they can be deleted is because the risen Christ who is now alive, took all of your sins on himself on the cross, and then he gloriously rose again, proving that the price for them really has been paid. And that's wonderful news. Um, one of the books that I often recommend to people is the one there on the screen. It's called A New Name uh, by a girl called Emma Scrivener. It's called Grace and Healing for Anorexia. Um, she um, details in that book the kind of uh, struggles that, that she had with an eating disorder. In her case, it was anorexia and many of the struggles that she had with that, uh, both um, before and after uh, she became a Christian. But it's ultimately a book that's really about hope. And I especially love the, the way that she describes uh, encountering Jesus in one of the chapters so uh, this is what she says. She writes, uh, Here at last is a God who is bigger than my drives. In uh, her case, it was a um, drive um, for um, starvation and seeking um, control, really. Um, a person in whose intensity I can rest. Here is the answer to every question. Does life matter? Yes. Have I any value? Yes. Can I know forgiveness? Yes. Can I be known and loved? Yes. 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 A million times Yes, here is the Lord who stoops down, who reaches out his hand, and who whispers, do not be afraid. Here is Jesus. Now, she, of course, still had many issues to work through in her life, as we all do. But yet she discovered that Jesus forgives us, that Jesus loves us, that Jesus offers us a new identity. He offers forgiveness for our past, uh, exactly like Paula experienced here, um, which is great news. And so I think we also see then that Christianity is reasonable because Jesus offers us a break from the past. But then we, but then we see also, uh, lastly, that Jesus offers us a reality in the present. And here I think we see the third reason why Christianity is worthy of your consideration, which is that Jesus offers reality right now. So I think one of the things that immediately um, strikes us and that definitely immediately struck me about Paul's testimony in this passage is that it's actually right up to date. And I think we see a couple of aspects of this. Uh, the first of them is continued obedience. So in verse 19 to 21, Paul makes clear that he was obedient to the instructions that he had received from Jesus. 
And he preached the gospel in Damascus and in Jerusalem and in Judea and then to all of the Gentiles as well. He says that he, had, he was actually obedient to Jesus so right up to the present time when he was uh, arrested by the Jews. And then we also see that Paul's testimony was characterized by continued help. And you see this in verse 22. So Paul says, but God has helped me to this very day. So I stand here and testify to small and great alike. So Paul testifies that God had helped him in his life. And he says, right up to this very day, almost this very moment, um, Paul had known that God was with him that God was strengthening him and that God was helping him. His testimony really was right up to date. For those of us who are Christians, I think this reminds us that our testimonies will like freshness and life if they are not up to date. What we say about Jesus would only ring true if it's plain that we are living for him and he is the one at the centre of our lives. I really love here that Paul's experience of God wasn't limited to what happened at his uh, spectacular conversion. Or it, was, um, it wasn't limited to some great way that, God, that uh, God had maybe helped him 25 years ago. But it was actually something that was part of his life uh, right now, uh, right in the moment too. He was conscious of God's help uh, and he was depending on God um, right up to the present time. So I think for those of us who are Christians, it's worth asking. Um, is our testimony uh, as up-to-date as Paul's was? Are we conscious of God's help and depending on him every day right up to the present moment um, like Paul was here? You see, if, if we're Christians, our experience of God is not to be like an antique that we maybe have at home. Uh, that's an inner sort of glass cabinet. It's something really old. Uh, we really like it and we only look at it from time to time. Now, actually, our experience of God should be more like our breakfast bowl that we sort of eat our cornflakes or our congee out of uh, every morning, or, or our favourite coffee mug that we maybe use at work, uh, something that we depend on and that we use um, every day. See, I think Paul's example here shows us that the fountainhead of our witnessing for Jesus is actually to be an, an ongoing walk and an ongoing obedience um, to him and de dependence on him. So how is your relationship with Christ this morning? Is it being fed by an active diet of reading God's word and fellowship and prayer? See, I wonder if for some of us here that actually the biggest takeaway from this passage for us could actually be that we need an up-to-date testimony like Paul's uh, if we're ever going to be effective uh, in witnessing for Christ. Maybe if we think back to that opening illustration about the king of Siam, uh, imagine if the Dutch ambassador had been suddenly able to pull a picture out of his pocket perhaps, or maybe if it had had very early uh, sort of mo mobile phone perhaps, and there, there, there would have been some uh, um, video footage on there of an elephant walking on ice perhaps. Now that would have given a lot more credibility to his claims, and maybe even persuaded the king of Siam. But I think that's really how it's to be with the lives of Christians. It's, it's almost as if we're the picture, we're the photograph, we're the um, video footage uh, that people need to, to see of Christianity. If we have an up-to-date testimony of God's work in our lives, and that gives added credibility to anything that we say about Jesus Christ with our lips. And then for those of us here this morning who aren't Christians, uh, I wonder, have you realized that one reason why Christianity is reasonable is actually the lives of Christians. 
Have you realized that one reason why Christianity is reasonable is actually the lives of Christians? I know that may su surprise you, but the Bible says that if you want some evidence that Christianity is true and reasonable, then one place you ought to look is actually at the lives of Christians themselves. There was a, a survey recently that was carried out in the UK, although I, I actually think its results would have been exactly the same here in uh, Hong Kong. And this survey looked at the reasons why adults um, become Christians. So it looked at why those uh, 18 or over um, become Christians. Uh, and the survey asked people to list those factors that most influenced them towards a faith in Jesus Christ. And the results of this survey were really interesting. Do you know what the number two um, was? Uh, the number two factor in terms of people becoming Christians was a Christian sharing their story of conversion with them, which is really interesting because it's exactly what we see Paul doing here. But the number one factor in terms of people becoming Christians was actually the lives of Christians themselves. Uh, these people consistently said that the thing that had most made an impact on them was coming into contact with an individual Christian whose life was different. Now, they either had a greater joy or a greater hope or a greater peace or their priorities were different or there was some other feature of their, their life which actually made Jesus really attractive to them. And they said, I, I want that. I want that thing for myself. And they said that that was the main factor which had led them towards a faith in Christ. And so if you aren't a Christian, this means that the one place you should look to show you that Christianity is reasonable is actually the lives of those Christians whom you know. Maybe even the person who brought you or invited you along this morning. Uh, maybe ask them, maybe look at, at them. And maybe ask yourself the question, what difference has Jesus really made um, to this person's life? And then for those of us who are Christians like me, surely this is a great challenge for us. Is my life all that different? Is our testimony up to date such that we are living in a way that is actually consistent and attractive and winsome to those around us? Of course, we aren't going to be perfect. We're all works in progress. But yet we can have a testimony that is up to, to date. We cannot actually do that. We can actually be those who are repenting of sin and we are walking with Christ and we are depending on his spirit to use us. That is actually achievable uh, for all of us who are Christians. So then, what have we seen this morning? Well, I think we've seen three reasons from Paul's life why Christianity is reasonable. Number one, Jesus offers us a hope for the future. Number two, Jesus offers us a break from our past. And number three, Jesus offers us reality in the present. And all of those are reasons why I believe you should give Christianity a hearing. I hope you've also seen that each one of these things is only possible because of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. The resurrection is obviously key here in Paul's thinking and key in this passage. Because it's only because Jesus is alive that we can actually have hope. It's only because Jesus is alive uh, that we can meet him now and uh, that he's actually taken away our sins. It's only because Jesus is alive that we can actually walk with him now and have a relationship with him and experience his reality every day. And so if you're a Christian here this morning, I really hope you are deeply conscious of the risen Christ in your life and in your thinking. Would your life 
be exactly the same if uh, Jesus had not been raised from the, the, the dead. Well, if we were a Christian, that should never, ever be. Surely the fact that Jesus has risen should mean that our lives are actually radically different. He should be everything to us. He is the one who gives us hope. He's the one who gives us a break from our sinful past. He's the one who walks with us and helps us as we continue to lean on him and be obedient to him. If you're a Christian this morning, is the risen Lord Jesus real to you? And is he making a difference in your life? For those of us who aren't Christians, uh, there's a whole bunch of different responses here. Uh, so let's just uh, look at a few of them. Uh, first of all, we see uh, um, Festus, the rational Roman, who scoffs at Paul. Remember, he sort of puts his head back and laughs and says, you're out of your mind, Paul. Your great learning is just um, driving you insane. It's interesting, though, isn't it, that he recognizes that Paul has got great learning. Um, you would think that uh, if he really thought that Paul had great learning, then maybe he would have thought that there might be some credibility to this after all. Maybe I should give him uh, a little bit more attention. Then, of course, we have King Agrippa, and King Agrippa's speciality really is in uh, avoiding the questions. Uh, so Paul leans into him in verse 26 to 29. Uh, Paul says, the king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that uh, none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, everybody knows about Jesus. Um, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? Do you believe the Old Testament? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, that he's become a Christian, except for these chains. Then you see in verse 30 to 32, the king Agrippa and Bernice get up um, and they walk out and leave the room. So Agrippa's really the kind of guy that avoids or sidesteps the big questions. Here is somebody who knows about Jesus. Paul says, this was not done in a corner. Uh, you know the facts about Jesus. He's also the sort of Romans uh, resident expert in Judaism too. Uh, he knows what the Old Test Testament prophets say. And so Paul's really urging him to join the dots, uh, to draw the logical con conclusions uh, that Jesus is al alive and that that has life-changing implications for him. But Agrippa is unwilling to do that. The uh, implications for him are just too great for him to handle. So he dodges the questions uh, and walks away. Don't be like uh, Agrippa. And then lastly, there's the example of the Apostle Paul, uh, the one who recognizes Jesus and receives him. So in verse 14, um, Jesus says to Paul, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, what does that mean? And goad is a bit of an uh, unusual word, isn't it? Well, uh, if you look at the picture there on the screen, you can see a man who's plowing with some oxen. And that long pointy stick in the man's right hand there is a goad. That's what a goad is. Uh, if the oxen become a little bit lazy, then the man can give them a big jab with the stick and hopefully the oxen will start moving again. Uh, but if the ox is stubborn, then it could try and kick against the goad. But of course, that would be pretty pointless. It's pointless to reject the authority of the farmer and try and resist him. It's exactly the same here. Uh, what Jesus is saying to Paul and what Jesus says to each of us this morning is, don't resist me. Don't resist me and my authority in your life. Ultimately, it is pointless to fight against God. 
None of us wants to be doing that. Don't kick against the goads. That's even more so, of course, given the fact that we know that God's purposes for us are good and loving, and God longs to treat us gently. Of course, God does need to use goads occasionally. God does need to bring his loving discipline into our lives. But even then, we know that his disposition towards us is kind and gentle. And we see that from the loving way that Jesus died for us on the cross. And so don't resist God. Don't resist what God may be saying to you through his word this morning. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we want to give thanks to you for your word to us from the book of Acts this morning. That Christianity is indeed true. And it is indeed reasonable. We pray that we may see this for ourselves by the help of your Holy Spirit and that we may have a greater confidence in it. And we pray for those around us too, Lord, our work colleagues, our classmates at school maybe, that they may also come to see Christ as true and reasonable and that they may may come to place their faith in him. And we ask all of these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.